This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. I want to talk about the Green Belt, uh, which has been in place since 2005 here in the province of Ontario. Uh, not without controversy, of course, when the government initiated this process some time ago. But it's there. It's there for all the right reasons. Uh, it's to protect the environment. It's to protect green space. It's to protect farmland, uh, etc. I think there's a pretty strong case for that. But uh, progressive conservative candidate Doug Ford uh, apparently doesn't share those reasons. Uh, Mr. Ford has uh, privately assured developers that he's going to open up a big chunk of the green belt to build housing. This is a, a video that uh, uh, he got caught on. And, and well, uh, let me, uh, uh, he can probably tell it better than I can. So this is the video that uh, the Toronto Star and CBC and many other network, uh, and, uh, and broadcasting institutions have said. This is Mr. Ford talking to some developers. We will open up the green belt, not, not all of it. We're going to open a big chunk of it up. And we're going to start building and making it more affordable and putting more houses out there. It, the, 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 the demand for single-dwelling homes is huge, but no one can afford them. So we need to start building affordable housing. I've already talked to some of the biggest developers in this country. And again, I wish I could say it's my idea, but it was their idea as well. Give us property, we'll build, and we'll drive the cost down. That's my plan for affordable housing. That's his plan for affordable housing. I believe the expression is urban sprawl. Uh, and I thought we'd already had that debate some years ago, not just in Ontario, but right around the world. And obviously, I guess Mr. Ford missed that one. Uh, interesting. Uh, it's the developer's idea to do this. I'm not surprised. And uh, by the way, I don't want to get into, into characterizations, okay? Uh, because I know an awful lot of people in the development business, and they're smart, they're intelligent, uh, they do have a social conscience, and they are environmentally concerned, but uh, apparently not the ones that were in the room with Mr. Ford that day. Joining us to talk about this proposal is Tim Gray, Executive Director for Environmental Defense. Tim, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Your thoughts about Mr. Ford's idea? Well, I think it's uh, pretty shocking to most people. Uh, after all, the, the Green Belt is just a, uh, an expansion of um, land use designations that have been started by conservative governments. Uh, Bill Davis established the Niagara Escarpment Plan, and then later on the Oak Ridges Marine Plan by Mike Harris's government. And then the Liberals expanded that to include all that within the Green Belt. But I think, um, you know, so obviously, you know, there's a long history of multiple parties in this province uh, wanting to protect the farmland and the natural areas and the headwaters of our rivers within the green belt. But I think the, you know, the tape that you played, I think, is particularly interesting because of the assertion that um, building houses remotely out in the middle of the green belt is somehow going to address the uh, affordability and housing supply issue that we have within our urban areas. That's and, a rather naive approach, isn't it? Yeah, it just doesn't actually make sense. I mean, the houses you're going to build there are going to be remote sub subdivisions, usually estate homes, and what we really need to see is more houses being built that are of a type that people can afford, townhouses, um, multi-bedroom apartment buildings and condos, mixed-use uh, kind of buildings within uh, our cities or close to our cities where people can take advantage of transit, they can walk to work, um, and we know that there is enough land within our existing urban areas uh, to supply all the housing needs, including those detached houses that he was talking about, until at least 2031, because cities are required to, to plan for the future. And so there's land right within the urban boundaries. You don't need to go on to farmland to do that. And then outside of those cities, there's an area called the White Belt, which is not in the Green Belt, but is also farmland that um, could be expanded into if we need more land in the future. So the idea of putting remote subdivisions out in the middle of the green belt really is just for a certain kind of developer. Not all of them, as you said, but for the ones that build these big monster homes, tract homes. And the, co the consequences for taxpayers are huge because we have to build roads out there. We have to bus the kids from to schools out there. We have to build sewer pipes and water pipes. So everyone who lives in these communities and the communities adjacent to them can expect their property taxes to continue to go up. And as you know, People who live in some of these smaller cities and communities uh, outside of the larger urban areas pay higher property taxes now, and that is because of sprawl, and it's only going to get worse if we take away the green belt. Well, and that's why I was so just flabbergasted that, that Mr. Ford would even come up with an idea like this. I understand that his only political experience, I guess, is one term as a city councilor in Toronto, but for heaven's sakes, he, he must understand the ramifications of doing something like this. And quite aside from the, the environmental concerns, which are numerous, as you've already outlined to him, is the cost it's going to be to municipalities. 
I mean, you know, as you've just outlined, you got to build the roads. The houses are one thing. You got to build the roads. You have to service them. That's water. That's sewer. Uh, that means you're going to have to extend police protection, fire protection, ambulance protection, uh, transit systems. I mean, people have to get around. And who's going to pay for that? It's going to be the municipality, which is only going to increase our property taxes. I mean, doesn't he get it? Yeah, and property taxes are the most regressive form of taxes. And the, re- you know, the reason I say that is that if you are paying more taxes based on your income, you have more income to pay taxes with. But if you own a house and the property taxes keep going up, you, your income may not be increasing or, in fact, could be declining, especially for retired people. Oh, yeah. So having uh, increased property taxes to pay for services is very, very difficult for a lot of people to deal with. Well, and we knew that already, and we already know the ramifications of that because a previous government uh, decided to download an awful lot of their costs onto the property tax base, and that only increased everybody's property taxes. Uh, so we've already been down this road, and I really don't think there's an appetite, I, at least I hope there isn't, for, uh, for Ontarians to do that again. Yeah, I really hope not as well. I hope this is just a mistake on his part that hadn't been thought through. Um, you know, this is a really important thing that we're doing here in Ontario. And, you know, all of the major uh, <coughs> industry associations, Toronto Board of Trade, etc., um, all talk about the co- um, competitiveness costs of gridlock, of poor urban planning. And we're starting to turn the corner on this, and we don't want to go back. Well, except that they're already starting to sell this. I mean, some of the, the candidates uh, for, for the Mr. Ford's party have already started to say, oh, no, 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 this is going to be good. This will be fine. We need the housing. Uh, and, and they've already said, well, you know, if we take, use some of this up, we're going to replace it with other land. It's, it's not simple take in, take out. I mean, this, this was a very, very scientific approach to the Green Belt. It wasn't done arbitrarily. And the, the land that is being protected right now is being protected for a reason. Yeah, you can't, uh, you can't take in and out because uh, what that triggers, I mean, there's, there's the physical aspect of it. Obviously, you're trying to protect the headwaters of the Humber River, and you decide to build a subdivision there. It's not like you're going to protect the headwaters of the Humber River by getting land somewhere else, like in northern Ontario. It doesn't make any sense. And also, once you allow um, subdivisions to start being created, land to be taken out of the green belt, then you start the, the speculator push. So then people with lots of money, these developers who build these monster homes, um, they can start to think, okay, this farmland isn't going to be protected as farmland, therefore I can buy it. So all the prices of that farmland start to go through the roof. That drives the farmers out because they can't sell to other farmers. They can't leave the, the land to their kids. It's worth too much money. So you start to see this speculative land increase value um, alter the green belt. And uh, then if government try and t- tries to change it again, all the speculators scream that you're, you're taking away their profits. Well, right now it's very clear Farmland on the green belt stays farmland, no speculation. As soon as you allow the first 100 acres to come out, the speculative rush starts, and it's very, very difficult to put that genie back in the bottle. What's the phrase in the commercial, Tim? Uh, good things grow in Ontario? <laughs> they do. Not, not they if we're going to pave everything. <laughs> not if we're going to pave it all. That's exactly true. And therein lies the problem. And you know what happens when you have sprawl like this, because we've seen this happen. And one of the worst examples, I guess, in Canada is the city of Calgary. I mean, it's so flat and lovely. And I love the city. I love the mayor. They're great people. But they got it wrong. And even Mayor Neshi understands that now, that you can't just keep going out and out and out. Uh, and I thought we'd learned that lesson, but that when you do that, of course, you, you start comes the other development that has to happen with this, and it just it just doesn't seem to make sense. It's this is a huge step backwards if, in fact, it happens. Yeah, it would be, and I think you know people in southern Ontario are starting to realize that our landscape is a lot more like Europe than it is like the rest of Canada. You know, I think Canadians sometimes think because we live in this vast country that uh, you know we can just keep expanding; we don't need to plan anything, but. The actual area in southern Ontario where all the farmland is, uh, where all the people live, is actually quite crowded, quite dense, and the land uh, has other values uh, beyond putting cities on it. So we have to think more carefully about how we want to plan our cities, and that's what we're starting to do. Well, there's a, you know, I'm just going down the list here of added costs, and we've already talked about some of the ones municipal costs and transit costs and things of that nature. Uh, the other element, too, is if you start taking away productive farmland, which is a real possibility in a circumstance like this, uh, and you don't grow enough food, that's fine. It's it going to say, well, we'll just bring the tomatoes in from Mexico. It's going to cost more. So our grocery bills are going to go up. If we don't grow locally, and that's really, the, I think, the, the mindset that we've got now is to grow locally because obviously it promotes the, the, uh, the economy. I mean, we have here in the Hamilton area a billion-dollar agri-food business. I bet a lot of people may not even understand that, but that's, that's industry. Those are people working in, in those related industries. You start reducing the farmland, you start reducing that industry. 
That's true, and I think uh, people don't often realize that uh, you know, the biggest industry in Ontario is agriculture, and the best farmland uh, in the country is right around uh, the GTHA. And that local food, of course, is, is cheaper, it's higher quality because it doesn't take very long to get to market, but it's also all these farmers who are making uh, a living doing this. Like, you start uh, destroying farm communities by putting subdivisions in the middle of them, and then people don't want to smell the manure, and then the farmers have to move away. Um, you know, you really do destroy the, the rural economy and all that agriculture, and we just can't afford to do that. So where do we go? I mean, because I think people have to have an understanding about the green belt and what's happened. As a matter of fact, there, there's been some discussion about actually expanding it, not trying to take away from it. Uh, I don't know if an, a, a new government, whoever's going to form the government in June, is, a, is actually going to consider something like that. But this seems to be a good idea that's growing, and it just seems as if this is, this is the reverse of that now, saying, well, we don't really need all that stuff. I mean, yes, I'd say it's true. Like throughout North America, there's a uh, growing use of green belts and uh, the idea of building um, housing closer to cities, building it denser so that people can take advantage of transit and walk to work and get out of their cars. So this is a, a growing global trend, and going in the opposite direction would really put Ontario on, on a different track. I mean, the other key phrase that we keep hearing about with urban development, I just had the Mayor Burlington on the program yesterday, Tim, we talked about that. I've talked about this with Mayor Eisenberger as well here in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. It's infill. Yeah. You can't keep going out. You can go up. And as you said, even if that's not what you want to do, there are going to be some areas where you should, uh-huh. like in, in urban cores, but there's more than enough land to build houses now. It's it's not the lack of land. And I know where the developers are coming from on this because, I mean, they can buy this stuff and make a ton of money. And I get that. That's what they're in the business for. Yeah. But that's why we have rules. So it just, just doesn't happen in an arbitrary fashion like that. That's true, and Hamilton's a really good example of a place where there's lots of opportunity for infill. Uh, you know, 15 years ago, Toronto looked very similar. Lots of uh, empty space downtown, lots of parking lots, lots of you know old buildings that weren't being properly used. Um, there's lots of opportunity for that in a place like Hamilton, and you know, Hamilton has a really great urban character, and building there, putting more houses there, allowing more people to live there. Uh, has some real opportunities to enhance the economy and make transit work better and bring back vibrancy to neighborhoods where that may have declined over the years. Um, we've seen that happen in other places, and we really should be encouraging it there too. And 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 that's the purpose of this whole thing is to find that balance. It's it's not hey we don't want development. It's that we can do both and we should do both. Exactly, and we're going to have a lot more people moving to this region over the next twenty years. It's a great place to live. Uh, it's prosperous. There's lots of jobs. Uh, the question is, is where should people live um, to have the best quality of life, not have to spend hours getting to work, and uh, not destroy the environment at the same time? And, and you touched on something right off the top, Tim, that I think is important here, because I know some people, as soon as you start a debate like this, they get their back up and think, well, you just don't like the guy. Mm-hmm. This is not a partisan issue, because as you, as you alluded to in the beginning of their conversation, uh, the conservatives have a history of, of, of environmental concerns about this. I mean, you know, the Bill Davis government, the Mike Harris government, I mean, if you want to go all the way back to the Brian Mulroney federal government, I mean, he's still considered, I guess, one of the most environmentally conscious prime ministers in our history. Uh, they got Ronald Reagan to sign the acid rain agreement. I don't know how he did that, but it, you know, it worked. Yeah. So, so this is, this is not that party against this party. This is, this is Ontario saying, wait a second, I don't think this is the way we should go. No, for sure. And I think that for, you know, governments that are concerned about things like uh, taxes, you know, you do not want to encourage sprawl because it increases taxes. Um, many conservative governments have been very concerned about the environment, as I mentioned, and, you know, the, the, the Green Belt really did get started by two conservative governments. So this crosses all party lines concerned about these issues, and it really needs to. And um, I think that there's you know, very little appetite among the pub- the public for going backwards. Uh, polling has been done recently and shows 90% of the population supports the green belt. So um, I think it's, uh, you know, a- an idea that um, who knows where it came from. Maybe it just came from the developers, some some of the developers, as, as uh, Doug Ford uh, said in that video. Yeah, but, but Tim, the optics on that stink. I mean, you know, that video, and it's gone viral. Everybody's seen it now and everybody's reporting on it. And, you know, the picture we're seeing right there, there's a rich guy that wants to be premier sitting around in a room with a bunch of other rich guys saying, I can make you even more rich by just uh, breaking these rules and doing this. That doesn't look good. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, he needs to listen to uh, a variety of voices, and there's a lot of folks in this province with deep expertise around some of the issues related to urban planning and protection of the green belt. And uh, him and his staff just need to spend more time with those folks. And um, he seems like he's sincere in his desire to have more affordable housing for the average person. Um, and the way to do that is not to build big houses in the middle of the Greenbelt. It's to 
build houses within existing cities where people can get to them. Yeah, uh, we've seen some of those houses on other areas. And as you mentioned, whether you want to call them monster homes or not, they're not affordable houses. Just, I don't understand the rationale. I think we've got a problem with definitions there. Uh, hopefully he'll recant and just say it was a bad idea. I, I'd like to think that's going to happen, but we'll see. Tim, thanks so much for the time yeah, today. thanks so much. Good talking with you. Yeah, Tim Gray, of course, Executive Director with Environmental Defense. Uh, it's one of the planks, he said that's his housing strategy, to build big homes out in the Greenbelt. That's not really affordable housing, and it's really running contrary to even what previous conservative governments have done. Hopefully he'll walk back on that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. You are uh, filling up your blue boxes. You're doing recycling, right? You know, reduce, reuse, recycle, that stuff. We've all learned how to do this. We've all learned to separate paper here, plastics here, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and as the, uh, the program, of course, has grown over the years, uh, we found out that we can recycle more stuff. Well, uh, it's kind of gone in reverse a little bit here in the city of Hamilton over the last little while. Uh, the city no longer wants you to put things like coffee lids, black plastics, or styrofoam into the blue box. And there's a pretty good reason for that. Chad Collins, the counselor for Ward 5, joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. How are you doing today, Chad? Good morning, Bill. You were one of the strongest advocates uh, for the recycling program way back when. And, and I know our diversion rate was pathetic back in those days. It's grown. People seem to be getting onto it, maybe not as mm-hmm. much as we want. Uh, give us the update on what's gone on and what you heard from staff the other day. Sure. Well, I think first and foremost, as you just mentioned, Hamiltonians are doing a terrific job in terms of diverting not just recyclables, but compost materials from our local landfills. And our solid waste uh, master plan that you just referenced that was implemented just after amalgamation, uh, the city invested hundreds of millions of dollars into um, the new green card program. We had to build a facility for that. Of course, we we distributed all new green cards to residents from one end of the new city to the other. And it's been a success since that time. And, um, and we've seen our diversion rates uh, rise quickly as a result of those new programs. And we're in about the 43 44% range right now as it relates to diverting waste and recyclables from our local landfill, which, and there's a huge benefit there, Bill. Obviously, it extends the life of a landfill. Landfills are very hard to get approval for today. So at some point in time in the next uh, 20 to 30 years, our city will be faced with uh, the issue of trying to find a place for our, um, our, our regular waste stream. Uh, but uh, as mentioned, over the last number of years, we've made tremendous success. And at the start of last, uh, I think it was the beginning of April, there was a national uh, news attention to Toronto in particular and some Western municipalities like Edmonton and Vancouver about some of the problems they were experiencing with their blue, par- blue box programs and the recycling programs. And at Focus, and, and what was um, what the attention, attention focused on, sorry, was the whole issue related to uh, the black uh, containers that most people would be familiar with when they're buying takeout food. Mm-hmm. Um, styrofoam, small styrofoam, not the styrofoam that you might get when you're opening a, a new TV or an appliance, but the smaller styrofoam that you might buy, uh, if, you know, you, you buy your chicken and it's sitting on a little styrofoam tray or you go out to a, a fast food restaurant and you get the white styrofoam container and coffee couplets, which are very popular in terms of uh, uh, part of our recycling program. And the articles uh, in CBC, The Globe, of national coverage, um, really focused on the contamination that these once recyclable materials um, were, you know, they were now playing a negative role in, in the programs in, those, in major municipalities across the, the country. And, and we weren't certainly immune from those issues. And that issue, Bill, is the recent changes globally with some of the secondary markets that are buying plastics. They're now asking for, <clears throat> excuse me, and styrofoam, they're now asking for higher quality. And some of those materials that we've been accustomed to putting in our blue box no longer have an end market. Uh, there's no one purchasing those plastics. They're just they're, the quality of those resins are not something that people are looking to purchase and, and reuse. And so that's created a dilemma for us. We've, you know, we've long over the last uh, decade uh, tried to educate residents in terms of what goes where as it relates to blue box, the regular waste stream, and, and our compost uh, uh, facility. And uh, and now what we you know these these products which people are regularly putting in their blue box every week are doing more harm than good, and and that's maybe a part of the process that a lot of folks may not be familiar with. I mean, they feel they're being good citizens, and they are, mm-hmm. I guess, if they do the recycling, etc., and stick the blue boxes out there. But it's only going to work if there's a market for it. In other words, it's, it's, you have to sell this stuff. That's right. And the questions yesterday at Public Works focused a, a, around. Uh, you know, what is the message? Are we telling people still put them in the blue box? Because if the situation changes in the next two to three years, if the uh, if there is a, a secondary market, 
and then the city would be poised, obviously, to divert those those materials from the landfill and resell them. And there's a revenue source associated with that. But in the interim, um, you know, we just don't see anything on the horizon that would suggest that. So is the message keep putting them in the blue box, and the city will dispose of it when it reaches the plant, or is the message to residents just uh, put it in into into the garbage can at home? And uh, and the benefits of that bill, and it sounds a little odd to to encourage that when these are recyclable materials. Uh, but they, these products, because of the quality, the poor quality of the plastics and styrofoam, they end up contaminating the good material that people are putting in their blue box. And so those little styrofoam trays that I referenced, mm-hmm. um, as they're put in the truck, they start to contaminate the other materials that are in the truck. And by the time they get to the, the plant, we've lost then some other commodities that could be resold on the secondary market. And, and so there's there, there really isn't a benefit right now to have residents put those in their blue box. And so our our staff are working on an educational campaign. We always have material out there, whether it's your waste guide, whether it's on social media. Certainly the city's webpage has a lot of information for people. And and our educational campaigns are important because, Bill, you've covered it extensively. We have a wave of people, especially coming from the GTA, where those programs are a little bit different than Hamilton. Some of those municipalities have one stream, so residents are not asked to separate any of their uh, their containers or their fibers, their, their papers. So an educational campaign here in Hamilton is always important. It's a regular part of our, our budget process. It's a reg- regular part of, of the information that we put out to community. But we're going to be tweaking that information shortly over the next couple of months, and residents will start to see what some may see as mixed messages in terms of, you know, these recyclable containers and goods that once had, a, a, had value and, and we once encouraged you to put into your blue box should now go into the regular waste stream. It's not the first time something like this has happened, if I recall, Chad. I think uh, some years ago, if the prices go down on the stuff that you re- you're recycling, I mean, it, it has an impact on the city. Oh, it does. It, it does. And um, that was part of yesterday's presentation. Uh, Emil Perfect, who's uh, in our waste area, uh, talked about the revenues. And so last year was a, a very good year for us. I think we generated $5.7 million in, in, through selling our uh, recyclable containers and, and papers um, to secondary markets. And this year, because of those changes that I referenced earlier, especially coming out of China, where they're, you know, they're looking for higher quality plastics to re- to reuse, uh, th- those revenues will go from 5.7 probably to just over four million dollars. So we, you know, historically we've we've established a reserve. Uh, the commodity markets can change drastically from one year to the next, as you just suggested. And so in in years where we receive more revenues from recycling uh, than we anticipated, we put money into a reserve. And in those years, and 2018 could be one of those years where we receive less re- revenues from recycling, then we will dip into the reserve to balance things at year end. So it's a, it, it's um, it's something you can never be certain of because it's you know you're at the mercy of global markets, but it's something we've done fairly well at in the past. And and Hamiltonians again should be congratulated for the terrific work that they've done, not just with the blue box program, but with the compost program, which is very unique to Hamilton. You know, oftentimes when I'm in cottage country or even visiting family members in Caledonia and you say, well, I, I need to dispose of this, you know, the banana peel and it's where's your green card? Well, we don't have a program. So we're we're fairly far ahead of many other municipalities. But, of course, there's there's always, um, you know, we can always do better. Oh, yeah. Listen, I get relatives up in the Barry Collingwood area. and they just, they, Actually, they just started the program about a year ago. So, I mean, you know, you're mm-hmm. 16 years ahead of them in Hamilton with what they're doing mm-hmm. here. Talk to us about how this impacts the landfill, though. And I know that's always been a contentious uh, topic, Chad, about what we're putting in there, how long this thing is going to last, and what we're going to do in the future. And I, and I guess even the news yesterday from staff is, is going to motivate this conversation about alternative methodologies, whether or not they're mm-hmm. good for the city. That This is, this is a, a pretty important area, and they, boy, you really only get one shot at getting it right, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I know we, you know we just focused our conversation on revenues and how much money the city makes from this, but that is not the primary goal and objective of our waste diversion program. It's about the environment. It's about your opening line of reduce, reuse, recycle. And uh, the landfill, um, as I referenced, I-, I believe the last presentation we received talked about a 25 to 30-year lifespan. And we're always improving those years because as compaction rates improve, as we find ways to compress the materials there, we find ways to extend the, the landfill. Um, and as we roll out new programs, as we just talked about, the compost program extended the length, length of the landfill by a number of years I believe that when we were talking about uh, the landfill just after amalgamation, we were talking about 18 to 20 years. And so almost 20 years now has passed, 
and we've managed to um, further extend the life with some of these new programs. And so at the current rates, um, you know, my kids and and their kids will be grappling with this issue uh, in a very public and open way, and it's always contentious, always contentious to talk about new landfills, always contentious to talk about the alternative, which is in many respects, you know, is incineration or gasification is the the new buzzword associated with those issues. And so it's uh, very important that from an environmental perspective and a financial perspective, we do everything we can in the interim to extend the life of that landfill to, A, avoid those situations and those discussions, and B, avoid the costs of having to build a, a new facility. So whether it's a, a an incinerator, which we're probably looking at $130, $140 million, or a new landfill, which could run the same uh, cost if you can find a location for it, those are difficult discussions to have. And, and I know some of the stuff is already going on. I mean, I, you do the city does have energy uh, from from waste programs uh, in, on a smaller scale. I, I know, as a matter of fact, some of them are in your ward. Uh, but you also have the other end of the scale. I mean, when you got on council years ago, of course, you inherited one of the worst incinerators I think ever built. Uh, just right. spewing stuff out of there, and, and you finally got that thing shut down. Mm-hmm. But but do you start looking at some of those technologies? I know a lot of people on council still had some concerns about gasification and mm-hmm. and, and those technologies. They are been used have been used rather in other parts of the world. Is 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 the technology improved now to the point where there's a comfort level? It's always changing, but I think you're you know every system has its its detractors, and so certainly you know swallowing up uh, farmland and or uh, reusing uh, quarries in the middle of a farm community uh, is contentious. Uh, you know, we went through that in, in Flamborough when we, when we had an application out there, not for a waste facility, but for an expansion of the uh, of the aggregate um, company's um, operation. Um, you know, trucks regularly making their way through rural communities is always an issue in terms of the degradation to the land. There's, there's certainly no shortage of information there. We're currently dealing with the former Taro landfill, which is a different kind of waste, but, you know, you... That's been covered extensively in the last year through the media, and there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, community opposition just to looking at expa- expanding it up rather than out, and so, um, and then the same the same kind of conversation could be had with incineration and gasification. The benefit that we have in terms of all those years that I just talked about, whether it's 25 or 30 years left, technology will continue to change and for the better, and so hopefully. Others will experiment with uh, either gasification or incineration or even modern landfill um, operations, and we'll be able to take and choose and learn from the best of those operations. But the downside, and I know you've talked about this with some of the other proposals, is if you build something like this, and yes, the the, the, the benefit is going to be, yes, you can create energy from some of this waste, but the, you have to feed the beast. Uh, which I guess I don't know what that's going to do to diversion rates because you've got to throw something in there to burn or you're not going to create the energy. And, and of course, one of the alternatives oftentimes that comes up is, well, then we'll take garbage from somebody else's municipality. And yep. Not always such a good idea. No, and that's very contentious. And, you know, we, we the last time we dealt with that was uh, from the airport, I believe. We were talking about the airport bringing in waste from other municipalities. And, and of course, there's been no shortage of controversy on, along the port in terms of private companies looking to locate in Hamilton and, and bring in waste. And that's certainly along the lines of, um, you know, their, their sales pitch is we're doing good things for the environment, we're creating jobs, this waste has to go somewhere. And there's always been an issue with image, Bill, associated with that. Back to pre-amalgamation days and post-amalgamation days, we've always been very concerned and cognizant of our image issue with that, that skyline that we've had to deal with for the last 70 or 80 years in terms of the industrial nature of our city and and trying to, you know, illustrate to people that we're much more than that skyline, although that skyline's been very important in terms of providing employment for thousands and thousands of people. Um, Ham- there's much more to Hamilton than, than that. And so this whole discussion about importing waste, you're right. It, it's, it, it's, hotly, it's a hotly debated issue whenever it's, it comes up, and, um, and there's always some concern about whether it's one step forward and two steps back as it relates to the, trying to combat that historical you know, blue-collar, industrial, um, environmental issues that we've had to deal with. And um, and I think those 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 conversations are important, irrespective of what view you hold. At some point, though, the, the landfill is going to be full, whether it's, you know, as you said, mm-hmm. 20 years ago, they were saying it was going to be 20 years, and you found new life for it, and that's, that's good, because that gives us a stay of execution. But some council, whether it's going to be the next term or some, mm-hmm. is going to have to make a pretty important decision here. But I guess the big question here 
is is the is the municipality on its own when something like this happens, Chad, or do the federal and provincial governments understand the the gravity of the situation here, especially the environmental concerns? And do you know would they partner in something like this? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think they they are aware of those issues. Some of these uh, large capital projects uh, have received provincial and and federal funds. I think the so I, from a funding perspective, you know, I, every government's different. It's probably going to be a third, a third, a third uh, contribution. Um, we're seeing a lot of um, provincial changes with the Waste Diversion Act that's been implemented by the Liberals. We'll see who forms the new government and whether the new government uh, decides to adopt those principles and those guidelines. Uh, but I think most important through all this discussion, Bill, is the time that it takes for a municipality to get through that process. And what we've been told in the past that just to receive the regu- the uh, necessary approvals from all of the agencies, you're probably looking at 10, 12, 15 years. And so you're right, that discussion probably much sooner than we think, even though the landfill has many decades left of uh, life left on it. Uh, the, the fact that it takes 10, 12, 15 years to get through the approval pro- process for both a, a landfill and an incinerator is um, is cause for concern. And, uh, and I think that illustrates how contentious these issues are. There's usually an appeal and um, and that appeal then takes you further through that process and, and extends the time that it takes for, for a facility to open. And, and that's um, usually the most contentious part of it is the approvals because you're looking at options, you're looking at alternatives. And of course, certain, depending on where you are in the municipality, there'll be groups, there'll be neighborhood organizations who oppose the um, these operations next to them for good reason. You mentioned Swaru. I, I know that Councillor Johnson has always had issues uh, for uh, with her residents around the the Glanbrook landfill, and of course we can point to other operations as well. So um, it, it's you're right; it's a contentious issue, and it's probably going to be at our doorstep sooner than we think. Yeah, except that the solution, as you mentioned, so far down the road. I mean that that, that process is just ridiculous. That it's going to take ten or fifteen years. I mean, if you decided mm-hmm. tomorrow that yep. we were going to do something like that, we're talking ten or fifteen years out. The, the province has got to do something about that. That's right. Yeah, and I think that some of the legislation we'll see, much like we've seen for. Um, higher density planning and building around transit stops, I think you'll start to see some of the legislation change to give municipalities greater control over their their destiny as it relates to uh, waste facilities. Well, it's a, it's a discussion that has to be done and, and has to be had because, like you say, there's a finite responsibility here with the landfill itself and, and some concerns about that. And uh, it's, I guess, worthy. And I know council has in the past uh, checked in with other municipalities, other jurisdictions yep. to see what they're doing. And, and there are some interesting ideas out there. In the meantime, uh, we're stuck with this. And uh, in the meantime, I guess we'll just look in the, for the mail, I guess, about the the update here, what we shouldn't put in the, the blue boxes, what we shouldn't put in the blue boxes. Yes, absolutely. And there'll, there'll be, um, you know, there'll be announcements made over the next couple of weeks and a couple of months. And, and residents will start to see that new information related to those items that, again, um, should be put in the regular waste stream now, temporarily. If we see a secondary market uh, emerge, then we'll certainly advise people otherwise. But in the interim, they'll uh, they'll see information shortly that'll encourage them to put them in the regular waste stream. Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins. Chad, thanks as always for the time. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for covering this, Bill. Okay, you bet. Uh, it's Because it's interesting stuff. Look, at I think everybody wants to be a good citizen. And we love to do the recycling because we know that there's a benefit to the city and to the environment. And, and yeah, as Councillor Collins mentioned, there's a revenue for the city from this, too. But when nobody wants to buy the product, we've got a problem. So uh, you'll get notices about that. It's a, a revision, I guess, as it goes on. But uh, listen, I still maintain that there has to be a discussion about alternative ways. Landfills are not the long-term solution. And you don't want to get in a situation like the city of Toronto had to do where they, you know, you, I don't know if you saw, ever saw that, the big transport trucks full of garbage driving down the 401 to Michigan to get rid of the garbage. And they've talked about other situations of dumping it down abandoned mines up in northern Ontario. That didn't go over well with the residents up there, and I understand that. So we've got to find another solution. Dumping it in the ground and burying it is not the long-term solution. It's not the environmentally solution that we're looking for, the environmental solution that we're looking for here. And uh, we need to find some of these alternatives and explore them and have the courage to jump in there and do something about these. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The uh, investigation into uh, what may have happened uh, in the last uh, U.S. election, of course, continues and taking some rather bizarre twists almost on a weekly basis now. Uh, The latest was yesterday. Actually, in today's edition of the New York Times, they have published a list of questions that uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller uh, wants to ask Donald Trump. Uh, the Times says they obtained this from somebody outside of Trump's legal team. They were no more specific than that. 
And, of course, uh, Trump has already gone on Twitter today and just, uh, you know, going crazy about the fact that you know, they are leaking documents, etc. But uh, nothing of any confidential nature here, but some rather uh, revealing questions, or maybe the answers of those questions might be more revealing. And we're not even sure if that's ever going to happen. Uh, joining us to talk about the, the latest twist is George Breckenridge, retired political science professor from McMaster University. How are you this morning, George? Uh, good morning, Bill. This gets more bizarre with each passing week, uh, <laughs> with the stories of, of you know, what Trump wants to do with Mueller, what he may do in the other right. investigation, etc. But uh, the, the fact that these have actually been released to the public, I, I, I don't know, and the Times isn't saying where they got these, but it does, I, I would think, put a little bit of pressure on the president to say, look, why aren't you sitting down with this guy? Well, there are two things about it. One is the, the former prosecutors who have been on television say it's very unusual that the that the you know the counsel would would give the questions to the defense. You know, that's not normal practice. And so Mueller has you, you can argue Mueller has gone out of his way to um, let the, the the president's lawyers know what you know what the kind of questions he's interested in. That's what that's one thing. Well, that's bizarre. I mean, you know, yeah. neither one of us are lawyers, but I mean, if I'm going to interrogate somebody yeah. or question them, whatever verb you want to use here. Uh, I want to get some straight answers. This is giving the the president and his legal team an opportunity to, if if they wanted to cook something up, they could because they say, "Oh, I know he's going to ask you this." Of here's the, in other words, here's the prepared answer for this, Mr. President. Well, of course, the but the other side of it is they, they don't know what Mueller know, already knows. Yeah, he has talked to loads of people, and uh, the fact that he's getting to the point of negotiating with the president's lawyers about about whether he can interview the president is an indication, you know, that he's built up a lot of information from all the other people he's talked to and the trump people don't know what Mueller already knows and so that's the you know they they would have to be careful with that but it's got to that point that yeah the question is will uh Trump agree to an interview, and all the lawyers I've seen on television say they would never advise somebody like Trump to do it because he doesn't he doesn't know the truth from falsehood. He just doesn't, you know. He's, there, he's, he's bound to. I mean, if you take the 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 interview that caused all the trouble with uh, the NBC guy, you know, where he said, you know, well, Lester I, Holt, I fired yeah. Comey, yeah, in order to get the Russia thing out of the way. That that was just him talking naturally you know and the, the without realizing what he was what he was saying and what he was giving away you know and so they'd be worried about that they'd also be worried about the fact that he would lie almost almost inevitable he lies all the time this the number of things about this because you're, you're right i mean anybody that watched the talk shows and I, sunday morning there i was again and you've got not just the politicians you expect there's going to be some partisan responses to some of the stuff that's going yeah. on between democrats and republicans but but a number of the networks are also talking, as you mentioned, uh, with 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 legal experts, folks that yeah, have been yeah, district so, attorneys yeah, in other yeah. jurisdictions. Some of them very high up in the Justice Department. Right. And and I, I was struck by a couple of the comments they've made. One about, uh, for instance, uh, Trump's financial situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the story that got leaked last week that he actually tried to imitate or pretend he was somebody else to uh, to get his name onto the Forbes top list. Yeah. Right. Uh, and 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 clearly it's the guy's voice. I mean, we all I think everybody understood that. Yeah. But the the you know. They mentioned about the tax returns, and, and this Justice Department official said, well, of course Mueller's got that. He says, you know, everybody's making a big deal about it. He says, but Mueller's not going to say I've got it, but, I mean, it's easy for him to access that, uh, that stuff. Well, he's me. one of the few people who could get it. Yeah. Correct, yeah. So he says he's got all that information. He I'm says, sure we don't know what he's doing with it yet, but he's got all that stuff. Yeah, but the, the, one of the comments was that he, there were no, none of the questions involved, uh, or only one or two involved his business dealings with Russia. I mean, the the questions about Russia were all, you know, how much did you know about what your, you know, what your people were doing in in their contacts with Russia, and uh, but very little on the business side, on the business or tax side of things. But I'm sure he does have the tax returns. He's bound to. The other element to this is, is you know, some are asking, well, why would he even need to talk to the president? And I guess, if, if, on one stand, from one standpoint, maybe it's not necessary, but he'd certainly like to get Trump's responses so we can contrast that with maybe some of the other stuff that Michael Flynn has told him and some of the other well, people that have, well, have already been, in, uh, you know, investigated. Yeah, but also he, he it's a very important for somebody like Mueller to, uh, to be seen to be fair to the president. And so the fact, as I said, said before, the the fact that they they gave these questions or something close to these questions to Trump's lawyers some time ago, apparently, 
Um, it is unusual practice, but it's obviously an attempt to make sure that everybody knows that he's being giving the president every chance to respond, you know? And and this is on the up and up. I mean, this, uh, I haven't know if you had a chance to read these over, the ones that are printed in the Times. There's nothing yeah. salacious here. It's, no, it's very no, business-oriented no. about, hey, what did you do? What did you say to this guy? But he does ask about James Comey's firing, which yeah, is interesting. Well, I mean, he wants the, to anyway. A lot of the questions deal with the possible cover, um, obstruction of justice. A lot of the questions involve questions around that issue. What did you know? What did you do? And and uh, all the rest of it um, around con- the um, obstruction of justice. And and of course that's been well known. I mean it's been obvious from the reporting that's been going on, and that's one of the principal focuses. But the other, and they say the others mainly deal with you know what did you know about what your people were doing or what that that. Uh, Interview that you know Don Jr. had with the, with the Russian lawyers and that sort of thing, you know. Well, uh, yeah, because now you've got one of those the Russians who were at that meeting suggesting that she was acting as as an agent for Putin. Yeah, well, you have to you have to assume just about everybody is acting at least with uh, you know in, in a general sense as an agent of Putin. Putin, you know, knows what's going on. You know, if, if he wants to know, and so yeah, that's a reasonable assumption. The fact that she admitted it is just for the question, the question still around that that whole business, the whole that whole meeting is, did was Trump aware of the meeting? And there's apparently a phone call that it was blocked, so you can't tell who who, who Doug Junior Don Junior was speaking to. But the assumption is he was speaking to his father and asking for permission to hold this meeting, and that Trump did know about the meeting in advance. And then put out the kind of false statement about what the meeting was about. Well, there's a, and a couple of statements that Mueller Ralphie wants to get some clarification on, and and these are Trump's own words, George, that he, that Mueller's even asking about. It. You know, go yeah. back to the Comey thing. You know, at, at first blush, I mean, we've heard two or three different explanations from from Trump, and and you know, these are Trump's tweets that they're they're actually quoting yeah. here. Yeah. And at first, he said it was all because of the way that Comey was handling the you know the 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 email thing with Hillary Clinton. But right. then then he went back on Twitter and said he fired Comey because of that Russian investigation. Well, does yeah. that mean well, does that mean that, Comey said, was getting too close? He said we said that in the in the uh, television interview. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah, he must have been, well, he just wanted, to, you know, the question is, why was he worried about an investigation at all? What, what you know, does he, he must have something to hide. That's the assumption. And his peculiar attitude all along, and still consistently, really, towards Putin and Russia, it, it's something that people are still scratching their heads about. There's something going on there. You know, so it was so unusual, particularly in, in the context of Republican politics, for somebody to be so soft and admiring of Putin, and uh, and then when the inquiry is, is set up um, to to see if there was you know well see both what the Russians were up to and and secondarily whether there was any connection with the Trump's own people. Well, then that's when he began to get worried and, and tried to get rid of it. Yeah, and of course, last week we had the con- congressional report that came out about this, suggesting that there was no collusion and no tie at all. Well, but that's but that's a Republican-dominated committee, and it was only the Republicans that signed off on it. Well, the sad thing about that is the the the, um, the um, intelligence committees, which were set up in the 1970s after the abuses of the CIA and were un- uncovered and things like that. These committees were set up in the 1970s, and they were set up as select committees. They're not normal committees. They're select committees, which means the members are carefully chosen by the leadership of both parties. The Democrats choose the Democrats, and the Republicans choose the Republicans. But the whole idea was that they would be, uh, you know, this would take uh, these kind of security questions out of politics as far as possible. They would be nonpartisan. And the Senate committee has operated pretty well like that. You know, the, the two leaders of the Senate committee, the Republican chair and the, and the Democratic vice chair, have really cooperated extremely well. But in the House, it's been simply, the whole, the whole thing has been hijacked. So the whole notion of a reasonably, you know, dispassionate uh, investigation into security questions has been clearly blown away by, by the Republican newness and people like that, you know. So it's a blatant whitewash. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is if the Democrats do win the House, 
in uh, November <laughs> elections uh, than Adam Schiff, who's been on television a lot, who's the leading Democrat on the committee, mm-hmm. will restart a lot of these the investigations. Then you, then you get a serious investigation. So that's one of the things Trump has to worry about um, as a result of the, uh, w- what happens in the, in the congressional elections in November, is that if the Democrats do take up with the House, then the thing that goes with that is that you get a majority in all the committees and you're able to do your own investigations. It's, it's I guess, un, unusual, but maybe not so unusual, that there's always going to be comparisons between what's happening now and what happened in Watergate in the early 1970s, George. Uh, and, and those parallels, I think, are, are, are very obvious to a lot, a lot of us that right. lived through those days. Uh, and, and what happened in those days, of course, is, uh, yeah, the Democrats were going after Nixon, and people at first thought this was just a partisan attack. Witch yeah. hunt is, uh, to yeah. use a phrase that I yeah. think we've heard more than once this time around. Yeah. But when the Republicans on that committee, on that committee back in, in the Watergate days, yeah. started to understand that, hey, wait a second, this guy is really, he's gone overboard. They're the ones that were the most fervent about this, people like Howard Baker and, and Lowell Weicker and that's others, right. that, right. that really turned the tide. It was the Republicans going after a Republican president. That's right. Of course, there were and, and they're saying, will that happen in this case? I don't think it will. I well, think it's a different the, time and a well, different the mindset. Repu- the Republican Party has changed. There are fewer sort of moderate, obviously moderate Republicans than there were in those days. And as you say, it was the fact that people like Howard Baker, who was, you know, the, the co-chair of the committee, of the Senate committee, um, were, were acting in, in a very dispassionate and open fashion and not in a partisan fashion that really turned the tide. I think that's exactly right. It wasn't fought out on a partisan basis at all. And the Republicans gradually, gradually, gradually faced up to the evidence. And in the end, of course, they, they virtually all threw up their hands and said, there's nothing we can do, you know. And so he, he had to quit or he would have been impeached. It's very difficult to see that in this, in this particular situation because the situation is so much more polarized between the parties. And the Republican Party has moved so much further to the to the right um, in, it's in in that time, you know. And and what's holding the Republicans back, of course, whatever they privately think, the is the fact that the Republican base is solidly behind the president, you know. And so it's a question of do I want to get reelected or do I want to tell the truth? <laughs> and, uh, do I say what I do? I want to say what I really think about Trump. But, but there's a different mindset, and you're right, George. It's not just in the Congress. It's it's. It, I think it permeates right through to the small town America. And, yeah, and, yeah. I think uh, right. You know, but they don't care what the truth is. In other words, we've already made up our mind about this guy. We like him. Uh, and I'm talking about his base. Uh, we yeah. don't care about his sexual proclivities. We don't care about the fact yeah. that he says one thing and does another. We don't care that we're paying, you know, the American citizens are going to end up paying for the wall right. after all. They just don't care. They just said, so what? So what? We, we, we're going to stand behind you know, this guy he, anyway. He, he may be a crook, but he's our crook. It, it wasn't like that in, in the early 70s. No, it I wasn't. Mean, no, it wasn't. I mean, Nixon obviously had a huge, huge victory, of course, in that election. Yeah. You know, he, uh, well, you know, when you look at that, I mean, McGovern won one state. I think Massachusetts was the only state that he won, and, and yeah. you know, Nixon won every other one. That's right. But they turned on him as soon as they found out. Wait a second, this well, guy's—he's illegal. This well, what was, he did. He was illegal. It, it was gradual. It was a gradual. I mean, the whole—the investigations went on for well over a year, year and a half, and so it was a gradual process of the Republicans finally, you know, faced with, you know, the truth that they couldn't deny. And we're willing to say, well, you know, this is, this is, you know, we've got to do something about this. Whereas uh, at the minute, the Republicans are in denial or they're keeping their heads down or they're, you know, they're just shutting up because they're afraid of the base. They feel, you know, and uh, now maybe once they get through the November elections, they'll feel a little freer. I don't know. But uh, at the minute, they're all concentrated on getting reelected in November. And a lot of them, of course, are not going to be reelected anyway. Is is there a smoking gun here, George? I mean, we we know that Mueller has an awful lot of of information at this stage. Yeah, bound to have, yeah. And and there's a parallel investigation going on, of course, in New York State to do with Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's that's, lawyer. That's right. That's right. Uh, which is an interesting sidebar to this because I mean that's done at the state level, and the, and the president really doesn't have any jurisdiction over that. He can't fire that prosecutor. No, the the Manhattan prosecutors, the federal prosecutors, course, have, have a reputation of being really tough as well. It's a very tough unit they've got there. Uh, and and we so we don't know what information is there. We don't know what information Mueller knows about that investigation because it was Mueller that that alerted those folks that hey, me you you may want to do something about this. Yeah, that's uh, And again, to, you know, because I know the uh, the accusation is always going to be well, this is a partisan witch hunt, and that's what Trump calls yeah. it. 
But Mueller's a Republican. The district attorney in New York is a Republican. Yeah. The judge that signed off on the order to to yeah, to raid the, them was a Republican. They're all establishment Republicans of the old of the old of the old the old school, which is going to disappear in a minute. No, that's true. They're all registered Republicans all their lives. So you know, this is not a partisan issue at all. This is no. this is somebody who's out seeking the truth. Yeah, uh, right. There's going to be an awful lot of pressure, though. Uh, once again, we've heard the, the story surface that, that Trump is seriously considering dumping Mueller and, and taking the heat for it. Uh, probably oh, I think it's getting more and more and more difficult for him to do that. I can't imagine that it'd be, you know, it would be burning the house down if he, if he tried to sack Mueller now, I think. Well, except that there are still some people that just are going to stand behind this. I mean, Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader for the Republicans, uh, simply says it's not going to happen. But he's, you know, if it happens, it happens. And he, he would, he's, of course, the guy that would not support the legislation that would have enshrined yeah. in the Congress yeah. that he can't fire Mueller. He said, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, Lindsey Graham, another, uh, of course, you know, standing uh, Republican rather in good standing, has said that it would be the beginning of the end of Trump's presidency well, if he I did that. So there's, there's a rift within the Republican caucus about that. Well, I think it would now. I, I just think the whole thing has gone so far. And, and Mueller already has, uh, and his investigators must have so much information now. And then, you, as we've been saying, you've got the kind of the parallel investigation into Michael Cohen's doings in New York, uh, which is, you know, independent of them. Uh, I, can't, I really can't imagine. I think it would be absolutely suicidal. But for Nixon did it. I mean, Nixon fired Archibald Cox and, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and, and several of the, uh, the heads of the Justice Department and it didn't do him any good. I mean, it, it really, in many ways, hastened the end. And uh, that would be true for Trump as well, I think. I, I just can't see that he would be quite that crazy in terms of his own self-interest at this point. I mean, if he had done it early on, you know, like Comey, he might have got away with it, but not now. I, I find that very hard to believe that he would be that stupid. Well, it would be very difficult to make an argument that, that if he fires Mueller now, that uh, that it was for any other reason except for the fact that uh, he wanted to end the investigation. Yeah, that it was obviously getting too close to him. I mean, that's the one thing that the questions show, that it's really now focused on Trump. That's that's the missing piece that the, the Mueller people don't you know want to have. And they say they want to do that to, in order to that people will see that they're being fair to the president. You know, they're not trying to get the president, they're trying to be fair to him. But uh, I don't. But again, all the lawyers on television say, "Well, there's no way I would I would allow my client, a client like Trump, you know, to uh, to talk to the lawyers." So I don't know quite what's going to happen. But but well, probably nothing. Probably he's not going to talk to them. I should think. Well, I would think that would be a very lively session. I mean, it's one thing to see James Comey before a congressional committee, but to see Donald Trump and Robert Mueller sitting across the table from each other. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, boy, I'd buy a ticket for that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it would be fascinating. George, thanks as always for the time. Always great to get your perspective on this. No problem, Bill. Take care. Bye-bye. George Breckenridge, uh, political science professor at McMaster University. Uh, Trump's got his base, and those people are going to love him no matter what he says, no matter what he does. Uh, And and it's it's that polarizing, and and you got to wonder just what's going to happen eventually. I mean, because there seems to be evidence coming out here now that there's something going on. And, And the Republicans, some of them anyway, seem to be turning a blind eye to it. Others not. And George is absolutely right. There are elections coming up this November, uh, which could could alter the, the, the power balance in, in the Congress and, in, of course, in the Senate. And that may change a lot of people's perspective. We'll see. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.